Good morning, everybody, on this uh, beautiful Lord's Day, and to everybody online, uh, along the lines of Pastor Nay, I am your now only intern here. Medjura, congratulations to the Clement family. Um, and it's also a privilege to proclaim the, uh, the, Lord's, um, the Lord's Word on a day we get to celebrate Pastor Ed's retirement. Uh, thank you for your faithful service all these years. May the Lord bring glory to himself through your life and uh, bless others uh, in this new season. With that, let's jump right into the text. Uh, as you open up your Bibles, uh, can you open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 through 18? And I would like to remind us of the context here. Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi while under house arrest at Rome. Now, this local body was dear to Paul's heart. Uh, this was the first church he planted in Europe. But not only that, this congregation has shown great love to Paul. They partnered with him from the very beginning. This was a church that prayed for him, supported him, and even sent a brother, Epaphroditus, to minister to him. And surely they were eager to know how he was doing. And this is uh, his update. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Behold the word of the Lord. I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Enemies of the gospel will try anything to stop its progress. From the very beginning of the apostles' ministry, their opponents did everything to make their lives miserable. From ridicule to violence, from false accusations to imprisonment, they used every tactic to contain the way. But no matter what they tried, much to their chagrin, their opposition had a galvanizing effect the church would bounce back stronger and spread like fire. Nothing has been able to stop the gospel. Now, this was foretold back in Acts 5 when the apostles first were imprisoned. Gamaliel, a Pharisee, gave a warning that turned out to be quite prophetic. He urged the council of his countrymen to keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is from man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And sure enough, in this letter to the Philippians, Paul confirms what they knew from the beginning. The gospel is no human invention. Despite chains and suffering, impossible circumstances and all, 
the Lord advances his gospel and his purposes cannot be thwarted. This message was a great encouragement, not only to the church of Philippi, but it should be a great encouragement to us. Despite the opposition of our day, the less than ideal circumstances we face, we can take heart that God is sovereign. Christ will be proclaimed, and that is cause for rejoicing. So two truths from today's passage, and the first is this. The gospel advances even through bad circumstances. The gospel advances even through bad circumstances. Paul opens this passage intending to give an update about himself, how he is doing. But as typical of Paul, he doesn't focus on himself. In this brief section, he mentions Christ, the gospel, eight times. He uses this occasion to point to Christ. Now, he wants the Philippians to know that what has happened to him has really served to advance the gospel. Now, the sense of the word really here has to do with degree. In other words, as the NASB has it, what has happened to him has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He wants them to know that things turned out greater, better than could be expected. So one may ask, what are these great things that happened to Paul? Now, before we go there, let's imagine some ideal conditions for a missionary trip. If I put my business planning hat on, I can think of some. I think of exposure. I know that's not a good word these days, but freedom to go place to place, universities, city squares, large auditoriums, big crowds, so that you can get the message out to as many people as possible. How about a smooth itinerary? Everything on schedule, no hiccups. We get to check all the boxes. And lastly, how about safety? Of course, there's nothing without risk, but it would be great if we were in no true peril. When we sum these things up, I think that would make for a very productive missionary trip. But we all know that these glamorous conditions couldn't be further from Paul's experience. We know what has happened to Paul in the final chapters of Acts. So here's a brief chronicle. For starters, in Acts 20, the Holy Spirit himself warns Paul in every city that chains and afflictions await him. How's that to kick things off? It gets worse from there. The Jews falsely accuse him. A mob nearly kills him. And for surviving, they plan an ambush to finish him off. Because the local officials kept trying to give him up to the Jews, he appealed to Caesar. And providentially, uh, Paul was one of the few Jews to have Roman citizenship. En route to Rome, their ship gets tossed in a storm. They get shipwrecked. 
Yet miraculously, not one person dies. They go to Malta, and he gets bitten by a viper, which is a venomous snake. Yet miraculously, he literally just shakes it off. And to capstone this perilous journey, as the commentator notes, Paul came in the company of the condemned, bound by a chain, awaiting the uncertain decision of earthly king. Nevertheless, still imprisoned, still chained, still unheard, still uncertain, he looks back at all this and can say, what has happened to me has really advanced the gospel. Throughout all these bad circumstances, in all that Paul had to endure, he never stopped proclaiming Christ. The Lord never stopped being sovereign, directing all things for his glory. And as a result, the good news advanced throughout the greatest empire on earth. And we see the outworkings in this passage. First, it spread to the imperial guard. And this is the Greek word, the praetorian. These, this was Caesar's personal guard made up of about nine to 10,000 soldiers. For comparison's sake, the Secret Service hires 4,000 people to protect the White House and our treasury. This was a massive security force of the most elite soldiers in Rome, and they were all loyal to Caesar. Paul was chained to these soldiers, soldier after soldier, in about four-hour shifts, 24-7 for years. Now, I'm sure they had many conversations. But what do you think their takeaway was? Christ. 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 You see, to those who professed Caesar is Lord, Paul proclaimed Christ is Lord. Paul was their captive. But it turns out they were captive to Paul. With the gospel message, he engaged the whole imperial guard, and Christ's name was revealed to them all. Further, Paul reports that the gospel spread to all the rest. Since he could not go out and about, since he was in chains, the Lord brought the people to him. As it says in Acts 28, people came to Paul at his lodging in large numbers. And he's explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. He welcomed all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching things about the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Though Paul was bound in chains, the word of God still proceeded and that is because God is not bound by our circumstances. And even further, many brothers found a new courage against all logic. The Lord used Paul's predicament to increase the faith and boldness of others. When other movements would have fizzled out by fear, we see here the hand of the Lord, which makes his people unconquerable under the infirmity of the cross, and causes them to triumph. 
in the words of John Calvin. Far from disheartening God's people, it made them much more bold, as it says. In the Greek, it's intensified their boldness to speak the word without fear. Such is the unstoppable nature of the gospel, and it even advances through bad circumstances. Now, church family, what does this mean for us today? We can take heart that God is sovereign in all circumstances. He will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. The fate of the gospel and the church is not up to us. It is Christ who upholds and sustains his bride. Yet this does not render us passive observers. Our witness to those around us matters. To quote J.I. Packer, so far from inhibiting evangelism, faith in the sovereignty of God is the only thing that can sustain it. For it is the only thing that can give us the resilience that we need and not to be daunted by temporary setbacks. The sovereignty of God in grace gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. Because God is advancing his kingdom. Success, though we may not be readily able to see it, success is guaranteed in the Lord. So brothers and sisters, where do you see the gospel opportunity in your circumstances? We may not be tied in chains like Paul, but as the commentator says, we may be tied to our office desk. We may be tied to our home or a sickbed. We may be bound in difficult work, difficult relationships. But knowing that God works in your circumstances will entirely change the way you look at your limitations, no matter what their cause. Though it's easy to be discouraged and tempting to give up when it's tough, let us not allow bad circumstances to dictate our gospel witness. Let us not wait for the right conditions. Instead, by trusting in the Lord, let us be bold and not fear wherever we are at. God will give growth to the seeds we plant. And as we look back on our lives, let us say with Paul, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And this brings, up, brings us up to the second and final truth for today. The gospel advances even through bad motives. The gospel advances even through bad motives. In verses 15 through 17, Paul comments on the split motives of some of the brothers. There are brothers who preach Christ with good motives, from goodwill, out of love, to help Paul. Paul is refreshed by these like-minded brothers in the gospel. He encouraged the Philippians to be of like mind and of one spirit throughout the rest of the letter. These brothers bore Paul's burdens. When there was a man down, they stepped up. And especially given Paul's stature, his authority in the church, they did not let their egos get in the way. They passed the baton and continued the defense of the gospel 
while Paul was in prison. This is a beautiful example of how different members can work together as one body. But as Paul goes on, there are others who preach the same Christ, but with bad motives. From envy and rivalry, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict Paul. But surprisingly, in verse 18, Paul still rejoices. Now, when I read this, I had to do a double take. That in every way, whether in pretense, which is false motive, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, is Paul saying here that the ends justify the means? That bad motives are okay as long as we get the words right? Now, before we there, go there, as an aside, texts like these, I think, are a good reminder that a given passage should be looked in the broader context of Scripture. If we read too narrowly here, we can run into interpretive errors. Now, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that regenerate believers, Christians, still struggle with sin. I'm sure we can all attest to that. Per our confession of faith, Sanctification is yet imperfect in this life, with remnants of corruption in every part. Further, even the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And here, Paul's experience is consistent with that sober reality. Now, though these brothers had bad motives, to be clear, they were not preaching a different gospel. Paul would never tolerate that. As we see in Galatians 1, even if an angel from heaven should preach a contrary gospel, let him be anathema. It was all the more surprising that they were preaching Christ. But this seems to be an unfortunate case of pride. With Paul sidelined, it seemed like they were seeking to increase their profile at his cost. And in those terms, it's not hard to see the same messiness in our churches today. The rivalry between church leaders, sheep stealing, partisanship between denominations, preachers who are in it for themselves, whether in our own backyard or afar. This is a sad reality that dishonors Christ. But for me, what is harder to understand was how men in the early church could act that way towards Paul. Paul was ordained, commissioned by the Lord himself. And I thought to myself, I would never treat Paul that way. Never. And then as I was patting myself on the back, (laughs) I imagined if I were in the same presbytery as Paul, his special place, in redemptive history. His singular, unassailable zeal for the Lord. His great mind. Several Old Testament scholars believe that he memorized in the entire Old Testament, which was the entire Bible at the time. To labor along someone like that, with such gifts, with such ministerial fruit, I could see how one's pride would be pricked, living in his shadow. I could see how one would want to kick Paul when he was down. 
Surely, ladies and gentlemen, sanctification is yet imperfect in this life. And even the Lord's ministers can harbor impure motives. Now, to make two important distinctions, although Paul rejoices that Christ is proclaimed, one, he does not endorse their sin. Later in chapter 2, he urges the Philippians to do nothing out of selfish ambition. Elsewhere in his letters, Paul clearly calls out the sin of envy and rivalry. The second distinction, Paul is not turning a blind eye to character flaws in church leaders. Amongst the qualifications he lays out in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, he clearly states that overseers, ministers, are to be above reproach, a lover of good, not be greedy for gain, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And in good Presbyterian fashion, as our freshly examined brother Austin can attest, those who play, proclaim Christ must not, must not only be orthodox, have good theology, but their character ought to be examined, that they have godly character. Also, church leaders must keep each other mutually accountable. If sin and bad motives are revealed, the church ought not to turn a blind eye, but address it and reprove them in truth and love as the Lord prescribes. No man is exempt. No man is too important to go unchecked in the name of the gospel. With these things in mind, we can get a clear sense of Paul's intent here. He does not condone bad motives, but recognizes that God can bring about good despite them. As Calvin points out, we can rejoice that the progress of the gospel is advanced by many who nevertheless had another design in view. God can hit a bullseye with a crooked arrow. And his word will accomplish his purpose, even from the lips of flawed men. Also, those these, though these men should be held to account for their sin, for their bad motives, Paul does not begrudge their attempts to afflict him. Laying aside his own interests, Paul's primary concern is the proclamation of Christ. And he rejoices that the gospel, the power of salvation for sinners, advances unhindered despite bad motives. So to close our time, I wanted to leave us with a couple reflections. First, is Christ preeminent in your life? Is the main thrust of our lives to make him known? With so many distractions, so many things that pull us this way and that, it is easy to let lesser things sap our fruitfulness and weigh us down. But as Paul exhorts the Philippians later in verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. May our thought life our priorities, may our joy be the proclamation of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we boldly witness to those around us and show them that our true hope is not in this life only. Second, what differences 
can we lay aside for the sake of gospel unity? Without compromising on primary matters, what can we hold with an open hand? With all the information and narratives that bombard us, it's easy to get charged up. And it's so difficult to give things their proper weight. Whether it is a theological matter, whether it's how to deal with COVID or anything in politics. But taking a step back, let us consider what of our own interests can we lay down? How can we die to ourselves for the sake of our witness to the world and our fellowship with one another? Let us pray for greater like-mindedness and unity in our midst that we may strive side by side for the honor of Christ. So to close, let us look to the day when the Lord will gather in all his elect. Not one sheep will be lost amongst all the tribes, tongues, and nations. Until that day, let us be encouraged that God advances his gospel. Let us lay our lives down unto that end. And let us always trust in the sovereignty of God, and he will accomplish his purpose. Let us bow our heads. Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you that you build your church and nothing will stop you. Thank you that you have zeal for your word, that, that it will go out so that sinners may hear and live. Help us to be faithful in any circumstance that we are in. Help us to participate in this great enfolding of the elect and help us to take great encouragement that our success is guaranteed because your word, you, will accomplish all your purposes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.